The Medal of Honor was introduced by the Navy in 1861 and followed by the Army in 1862. It is considered the highest military decoration and, as of 2022, it is chosen for those who have, quote, distinguished themselves by acts of valor. More specifically, quote, conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty, end quote. But in 1890, 20 of the soldiers of the 7th Cavalry were honored for their bravery and sacrifice as they surrounded a reservation of 300-plus Lakota men, women, and children one cold day in December and slaughtered them. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. In 1887, under the direction of President Grover Cleveland, the Dawes Act was put into action. This is going to be the brief overview of what it entailed because the number of treaties and shifts that happened prior to the unfolding of this event is long, and I could not do the history justice by squishing it into a few minutes. So I'm basically jumping in post Fort Laramie Treaty and into the Dawes Act. In short, The Fort Laramie Treaty, in its many versions, took away approximately 90 million acres of tribal lands away from the Native Americans, and those lands were divided into individual 160-acre lots instead, one per head of household in which they were to farm and raise cattle. They were promised cows and seed and farming tools, and they were expected to become farmers completely giving up their nomadic and hunter-gatherer way of life. Only no cows or seeds or tools ever showed up. Each person was required to register with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and due to the allotments, there was plenty of surplus land, which was sold off to non-Sioux. This included the Black Hills, where gold was eventually found. The Black Hills did not only give them hunting grounds necessary so they could have some autonomy, as mentioned in earlier treaties, but it was also considered sacred ground. They believed it was holy. The book The Wounded Knee Massacre by Matt Clayton writes, quote, The reservation borders were forcefully redrawn, and while the Black Hills Act mentioned that the land had been purchased from the Sioux, no transactions were actually made a fact that was acknowledged 103 years later by the U.S. justice system in 1980, The Sioux Nation was divided and separated into five different reservations. Their strips of land were small, and many were forced to squeeze in. The buffalo had mostly been killed off for sport and financial gain, but with an underlying mission to make the Native Americans more compliant. And then they were sent to areas that were not known for their fertile soil. Government rations were scarce. Medicine for all the new ailments the Native Americans were facing were practically non-existent. They had no horses, no weapons. They were, quote, dismounted and disarmed, end quote. It's no surprise then, before too long, the Native American population was starving. They were no longer free. They had to ask for permission to leave the reservation. To make matters worse, the first year following the Dawes Act, a miscalculation in the census, the Dawes Rolls, was not counted correctly, which turned into not enough supplies being sent in the form of staples from the U.S. government. Now remember, the government advocated the tribes become dependent on the government to take care of them. Nowhere that I could find had the American tribes ever suffered from starvation until the government got involved. Lean years, maybe, but 
to become reliant on another human entity, especially one with changing heads, was hazardous to their health. Oh, but wait, I almost forgot. That winter, an influenza epidemic tore through the plains and ended up killing a number of the Sioux children. Matt Clayton said in his book that the beef supplies for the reservation were spoiled by anthrax under, quote, mysterious circumstances. Then there was a drought the following spring, so that even if they had been farming, it would have all been ruined. All in all, a once healthy tribe of thousands were left nearly destitute. They were being forced to assimilate to a different culture, while theirs had become forbidden. Senator John Logan would be recorded by D. Brown as saying, quote, You are on an Indian reservation merely at the sufferance of the government. You are fed by the government, clothed by the government, your children are educated by the government, and all you have and are today is because of the government. If it were not for the government, you would be freezing and starving today in mountains. The government feeds and clothes and educates your children now, and desires to teach you to become farmers and to civilize you and make you as white men. End quote. According to U.S. Indian agent James McLaughlin, this quote unquote care by the white agencies was only to be temporary. He writes, quote, their meat supply was cut off, and they were rendered dependent on a government whose policy was the gradual reduction of gratuities to the Indians, end quote. He continues, quote, They appeared to have been suddenly forced to the knowledge that the white man was master of the situation and the country, and the salvation of the Indian lay along the broadly blazed trail made by whites, end quote. But then, General Nelson Miles would state, quote, The majority of the Sioux were under the charge of civil agents, frequently changed and often inexperienced. Many of the tribes became rearmed and remounted. They claimed that the government had not fulfilled its treaties and had failed to make large enough approportions for their support, that they had suffered for want of food and the evidence of this is beyond question and sufficient to satisfy any unprejudiced, intelligent mind. End quote. The Lakota Sioux were in a broken state. They were searching for hope. They needed a sign. Word spread that a Paiute prophet named Wovoka had a vision. He believed the Christian Messiah, Jesus Christ, came to him to bring him peace in a Native American form. According to Wovoka's vision, the white men would disappear from the native lands and the grounds would swallow them. The buffalo and other game would return in abundance and their ancestors would return to earth. In faith, he asked that all the nations dance the ghost dance and wait for his return. Lakota's Kicking Bear and Short Bull were anxious to bring the news back to their tribes, but they might have enhanced the story a little bit. By the time the ghost dance was taught to the Lakota, the Messiah would give their shirts power to repel bullets and promised that a flood or earthquake would come to destroy all the white people. The ghost dance, as it was called, gave the people the hope they were searching for. It gave them an action to do while they were struggling to survive their current dismal situation. McLaughlin wrote, quote, it was plainly the business of the government and its agents to prevent the Indians from leaving the reservations upon which they were located, and to suppress the ghost dancing by demonstrating to the unthinking and powerlessness of their prophets to save themselves from punishment and insubordination. End quote. From reservation to reservation, the dance spread. It completely alarmed the white folk. McLaughlin went into full-on panic mode and requested troops be sent immediately to stop the dancing. He was convinced they were preparing for an uprising, leading to war. If you want to know more about the ghost dance in particular, I wrote an accompanying article on my website that goes into the craze and the theology more deeply if you want to check it out. It will be at elizabethboucheret.com forward slash beyond the bones. Don't worry, I'll leave the link in the show notes. In June 7, 1890, a letter was sent out from the Commissioner of Indian Affairs 
that there was a concern for an uprising of the Sioux Indians and a plan for an outbreak. McLaughlin, the agent at Standing Rock where Sitting Bull was captive, I mean, living, he would send out this missive in reply, quote, There are a few malcontents here, as at all of the Sioux agencies, who cling tenaciously to the old Indian ways and are slow to accept the new order of things. And this class of Indians are ever ready to circulate idle rumors and sow dissensions to discourage the more progressive. End quote. He goes on to offer his solution. Quote, the removal from among them a few individuals such as Sitting Bull, Circling Bear, Blackbird, and Circling Hawk of this agency, Bigfoot and his lieutenants of the Cheyenne River Agency, Crow Dog and Low Dog of Rosebud, and any of the like sort of Pine Ridge, would end all trouble and uneasiness in the future. End quote. The name Bigfoot is important to point out here because he becomes an important figure in this event. But Bigfoot was not his real name. It was Sitanka, Spotted Elk. But the soldiers made fun of his extra-large shoe size, that this new name became fact among most of the written and verbal transactions within the agency. McLaughlin would claim to have made his request to sequester the troublemakers repeatedly to deaf ears. He says, quote, it was the common-sense proposition to remove the disaffected from the well-affected, but the desired order was not forthcoming until the dissatisfaction had assumed alarming proportions, end quote. However, things got out of hand. A few telegrams had been sent by General Nelson Miles with a surprisingly honest reply to continuous requests to quell the savage behavior. He writes, quote, the difficult Indian problem cannot be solved permanently at this end of the line. It requires the fulfillment of Congress of the treaty obligations which the Indians were entreated and coerced into signing. They signed away a valuable portion of their reservation, and it is now occupied by white people, for which they have received nothing. They understood that ample provision would be made for their support. Instead, their supplies have been reduced and much of the time they have been living on half and two-thirds rations. Their crops, as well as the crops of the white people, for two years have been almost a total failure. This disaffection is widespread, especially among the Sioux, while the Cheyennes have been on the verge of starvation and were forced to commit depredations to sustain life. These facts are beyond question, and the evidence is positive and sustained by thousands of witnesses. Serious difficulty has been gathering for years. Congress has been in session several weeks and could in a single hour confirm the treaties and appropriate the necessary funds for their fulfillment, which their commissioners and the highest officials of the government have guaranteed to these people, and unless the officers of the army can give some positive assurance that the government intends to act in good faith with these people, the loyal element will be diminished and the hostile element increased. End quote. In short, Sitting Bull was in fear for his people. Again, I touch more on Sitting Bull's story over at the Beyond the Bones blog, but he was seen as a leader of the Sioux Nation for most of his life and was trusted and highly respected among them. He wasn't your average chief, most think of warrior status. He was more of a spiritual guide. So these stories of the coming Messiah and the ghost dance were very, very important to him. You could almost say they were gospel. On December 15, 1890, when McLaughlin's pleas had finally been answered, but in McLaughlin's mind they were taking too long, he undermined his boss and sent a group of soldiers to arrest Sitting Bull and Spotted Elk and the others. Hugh McGinnis was the last surviving member of the 7th Cavalry Troop K that participated in Wounded Knee. He recalls prior to that incident, quote, Since Sitting Bull was considered the chief agitator of unrest, it was hoped that his apprehension would solve the potential revolt. Buffalo Bill Cody, an old friend of the chief, volunteered to try and persuade the medicine man to give himself up peaceably. General Miles consequently gave the old scout an order for the shaman's arrest, and Cody set out, loaded down with trinkets and candy. 
I never met Sitting Bull, but I can clearly recall my visit with Buffalo Bill, and I often wonder if all the subsequent bloodshed might have been avoided if Cody had been allowed to complete his mission. But McLaughlin, the Standing Rock agent, as well as certain military men at the scene, didn't favor Cody's appointment. They preferred to handle the matter in their own way. End quote. Just days before the military arrived, Buffalo Bill Cody included, McLaughlin sent about 30 of his own police officers, many of whom were Native Americans who turned their back on their nation. Sitting Bull refused to go. A shot went off. The one holding the smoking gun was Catch the Bear, and the bullet landed in Lieutenant Bullhead. But instead of firing back at the man who accidentally or on purpose shot him, he shot Sitting Bull in the chest. Another police officer then shot Sitting Bull in the head. Sitting Bull slumped to the ground and died soon after. Matt Clayton writes, quote, Many historians take this damning evidence that the whole affair was a setup to get an excuse to kill the old Lakota chief who held so much influence in the Native American communities to spark a conflict. Further eyewitnesses' accounts from multiple sources has helped confirm his theory over the years. End quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. But what happened was not an uprising. There was no reason to open fire on a group of people they assumed would react a different way from the death of their leader. Instead, there was fear. They escaped the reservation. McGinnis explains how word spread quickly of the death of the beloved Sitting Bull. Quote, when Bigfoot heard the report, he and his band of 400 Sioux decided to flee en masse to join their comrades in the Badlands, end quote. Fearing for his life and the lives of his people, the Minikanju Sioux spotted elk decided to risk it all and remove his people from the reservation. About two of Sitting Bull's people, the Hunkpapa Sioux, decided to go with. So about 300 to 350, depending on whose story you listen to, made up of many women and children and only 38 warriors, left Standing Rock Reservation and Cheyenne River Reservation on the 23rd of December. In his defense, Spotted Elk wasn't going all rogue or anything. He wasn't trying to start war. It was the end of the season. Winter was here. It was cold. So he was just relocating to another reservation to unite with another Sioux tribe at Pine Ridge. I mean. How fast can you go when you're guiding 300 people and it's 30 degrees outside? The rumors were that the Oglala Sioux Chief Red Cloud, who was at the Pine Ridge Reservation, was making progress in negotiations with the U.S. to attempt to preserve the Lakota traditions without bloodshed. Chief Spotted Elk thought his people would be safer around people who were at least willing to negotiate or entertain talks. General Miles begrudgingly sent out orders for the 7th Cavalry under the lead of Major Samuel Whitside to intercept them, disarm them, and return them to the reservation peacefully. Three troops, K, A, and B, were ordered to bivouac to Wounded Knee. What they didn't know was that the reservation they would be directed to was in a completely different state. The military was ordered to get the Sioux tribe to a train in order to transport them to a military prison in Fort Omaha, Nebraska, far, far away from the people who might be able to influence them to retain the quote-unquote old ways. 
A smaller detachment of military caught up with another small band of deserters around Porcupine Butte. Spotted Elk at this time had come down with pneumonia, and there was no resistance to being overtaken by the military. At the warning of a half-Lakota scout who served as an interpreter for the military by the name of John Shangro, they opted not to disarm them at the moment, but to escort the entire group five miles further to make camp at Wounded Knee Creek. Again, the Sioux tribe, under the leadership of their very ill chief, made no move to resist. Later in the day, Colonel James W. Forsyth arrived with another detachment of soldiers along with four Hotchkiss machine guns and completely surrounded the encampment, bringing the number of soldiers to about 500. Side note, they were only 20 miles from the Pine Ridge Reservation. The soldier Hugh McGinnis would recall, quote, Escorted by our troops, the bedraggled band came straggling in through the snowstorm late that afternoon. The Sioux had several wagons and a number of shaggy ponies pulling travois followed by squalid squaws and ragged children, all suffering from hunger and cold. They camped, as directed, on the open plain in front of a dry ravine and erected a white flag of truce between the chief's tent and wagon. I wandered over to the Indian campsite that evening out of curiosity and watched them wolf down the food dispensed by our cooks, ravaged by the elements and the hardship of their flight. The Sioux were a desperate-looking lot, end quote. I mentioned four Hotchkiss guns were set up and armed, pointed at the camp. For those of you who don't know the firepower of a Hotchkiss, picture in your mind a cannon. It looks like a cannon. It has the big wheels and a center barrel, but it is much smaller and more narrow than a cannon. The M1875 in this case was the replacement for the heavy 500-pound mountain howitzer. It was easier to transport, weighing only 116 pounds, and it was able to launch ammunition weighing 2 pounds in rapid succession. I have been told that it may be able to launch small projectiles like mini cannonballs, but at this particular instance, I believe it fired what was called grape shot, smaller bullets, but larger diameter than rifle buckshot, and it would spray no less than 1,500 yards away. It was able to fire 52-pound shells per minute. The Sioux teepees were grouped together in a flat area. The creek was nearby within walking distance, but was mostly dry, creating more of a deep ravine. There was some water, ice-cold water, but it was recorded that the soldiers used this to make their coffee. Priorities. There was fresh snow on the ground, and the temperatures were immensely cold. The military surrounded the Indian camps on all sides. The Hotchkiss guns were mounted and loaded just beyond the camp on a hill overlooking the area. As night fell and the men sat around the campfire, all was quiet. Spotted Elk, weak with fever, sat among them. On the morning of December 29th, the U.S. Cavalry troops went about their business of disarming the Lakota of any weapons. Hugh McGinnis recalls, quote, Seventy-six men from A and I troops were stationed around the encampment on foot. A company of scouts was lined up on the south bank of the ravine, backed up by two companies of mounted troops, D and C. Then the camp was flanked on the east by G troop, on the west by E troop, and a battery of Hotchkiss guns were mounted on a rise overlooking the camp. These deadly guns, capable of firing two-pound explosive shells at the rate of 50 per minute, were trained directly on the cluster of Indian tents. Soldiers in my troop, as well as those in B troop, were dismounted and ordered to stand guard a short distance from Chief Bigfoot's tent, where the parley was to be held." Women and children were all moved to one side away from the men and were allowed to stay and watch if they chose. Spotted Elk, the chief, was carried from his tent and propped up with blankets to hear what was said. Forsyth explained that all Sioux Indians were to turn over their weapons. All their weapons. They tried to explain through an interpreter that they would need their weapons to be able to kill ducks and rabbits to feed their families to keep from starving. Spotted Elk did not agree, but as a token of the meeting in the middle, he surrendered a few of his guns and made his main council do the same. 
it was not good enough, according to Forsyth. He ordered a mandatory and complete search of all the people and the camp. Now, a few things were happening at the same time that may have added to this already tense moment. The first, as I mentioned, the Lakota had no idea that the 7th Cavalry would not be escorting them to the Pine Ridge Reservation. They were being sent to a train to move them to a prison. Second, they're completely surrounded by military. And as the soldiers became more aggressive, even though the Native Americans were complying, they had already retrieved 38 guns from the small band. The soldiers were making them uncomfortable and exposed. Yellowbird, a medicine man, started going through the motions and chants of the ghost dance and was reportedly joined by Sitz Strait, who tried to encourage others to join. This made the soldiers very nervous, feeling uncomfortable and exposed. It would be believed that Yellowbird was trying to convince the men to fight back, that their shirts were bulletproof, and this is the story that is passed down through history. But Alice Ghost Horse, who was 13 at the time, watching the event unfold with the women, recalled what the medicine man was really saying. She said, quote, Yellow Bird stood facing the east, right by the fire pit which was now covered up with fresh dirt. He was praying and crying. He was saying to the spotted elk that he wanted to die instead of his people. He must sense that something was going to happen. End quote. And just at this point, everyone is on edge. So while that is unfolding, two officers came upon Black Coyote, a deaf warrior who was holding his rifle in front of him. One of the soldiers attempted to take it from him, and he complained that it was his gun and that he had paid a high price for it. The Indians standing around him told the soldiers he was deaf. Even Theodore Ragnar, one of the soldiers from the 7th, also warned that he was deaf. They didn't care. They wanted the gun. One of Chief Spotted Elk's warriors, Wasimaza, recalled telling the soldiers, quote, Stop, he can't hear you. Later he would recall, quote, if they had left him alone, he was going to put his gun down where he should. They grabbed him and spinned him in the east direction. He was still unconcerned even then. He hadn't had his gun pointed at anyone. They came on and grabbed the gun. He was going to put it down. End quote. From the eyewitnesses around at that time, the gun went off in the air. General Nelson Miles would write in his report, quote, a scuffle occurred between one deaf warrior who had a rifle in his hand and two soldiers, end quote. At practically the same time, the medicine man threw a handful of dust into the air. Then the meltdown happened. Alice One Horse said that when Yellowbird threw the dust, he said, quote, This is the way I want to go back, to dust, end quote. It didn't matter what was said. Nothing was heard after that but gunfire and screaming. Chief Spotted Elk was the first to fall. The U.S. Army lost all control of their men. At the report of the gun going off, soldiers at close range began firing at whomever was in front of them. The handful of Lakota, who still had their weapons concealed, threw off their blankets, revealing knives. The warriors tried to reclaim the weapons already absconded, and some succeeded, but many were slaughtered almost immediately. Almost half of the Sioux men were killed or wounded without any chance of defense. Jerome Green, who wrote the book American Carnage, would later write, quote, There was a huge explosion of gunfire as the Lakota fired at the soldiers only about 25 feet while the soldiers fired back at the same time spontaneously. That killed many of the warriors in the council area, end quote. McGinnis remembers, quote, we were firing at each other point-blank range. With blood-curdling war hoops, braves without guns rushed us in an attempt to hack their way through our ranks with knives, hatchets, and war clubs. They were determined to reach their horses, and our troop taking the brunt of the attack was simply cut to pieces, end quote. Turning Hawk would recall, quote, All the men who were in a bunch were killed right there, and those who escaped that first fire got into the ravine, and as they went along up the ravine for a long distance, they were pursued on both sides by the soldiers and shot down, as the dead bodies showed afterwards. 
and then the women who were bunched together at another place went entirely in a different direction through an open field, and the women fared the same fate as the men who went up the deep ravine. End quote. The whole area erupted with people running in every direction trying to get away from the firefight. Nellie Knife would clearly recall the day of the massacre. She remembers starting the day packing their belongings to continue the journey. She says, quote, All at once I heard an awful noise. As the shots were fired, the women and children ran for a safe place to hide. I ran toward the flat, and as I ran, I saw many people were already killed. End quote. Mrs. Ruffeather recalled the terror as she ran with others toward the ravine seeking safety. She said, quote, Bullets flew all around us. I was not hit one time but my father, my mother, my grandmother, my older brother, and younger brother were all killed. My son was two years old, he was shot in the mouth, and that later caused his death. The soldiers manning the Hotchkiss guns were slightly above the flat plain and the ravine, and they could see the whole camp. They waited to fire until their men mostly got out of the way. So that means... They were not afraid for their lives. They were not afraid for the lives of their fellow soldiers. They waited until the soldiers firing their guns stepped back to clear the area. Mostly. The Hotchkiss guns were released and then decimated the area. They tore through the teepees and then rolled closer to target those in the ravines and those trying to escape across the prairie. American Horse would later say, quote, they turned their guns, Hotchkiss guns, etc., upon the women who were in the lodges standing there under a flag of truce. End quote. McGinnis would quote, The first blasts of the cannons, which had been trained on the teepees, had mowed down the women and children, and now that the Hotchkiss guns had been turned into a position to sweep the ravine, the Indians were cut down in droves. Those that escaped this merciless hail of lead fled in terror over the plains with the troopers in hot pursuit. End quote. It is believed that only 25 soldiers died. They were victims of friendly fire from their own Hotchkiss guns. McGinnis confirms, saying, quote, But fantastic as it sounds, the surrounding troopers were firing into this seething mass of humanity, subjecting us as well as the Indians to a deadly crossfire. In the midst of this whirling bedlam, I had no time to check my left arm when the first bullet struck home. Then another slug tore through my thigh. A third bullet smashed the butt of my rifle, and I was face to face with a raging Sioux. Using the gun as a club, I warded off a murderous blow and went spinning to the ground, weak from the loss of blood, spouting from my wounds. Father Kraft's face swam before my eyes as I blacked out. End quote. There were many reports that the air was so thick with smoke that, first of all, you could barely breathe. But you also couldn't see who was in front of you. You didn't really know who you were shooting at at times. But then again, there were other reports that told of soldiers mounting their horses to pursue the men, women, and children that tried to flee. Some say they chased them for miles. Chief American Horse would recall, quote, The women, as they were fleeing with their babies, were killed together, shot right through. End quote. Captain Edward S. Godfrey of the 7th would recall, quote, They fired rapidly, but it seemed to me only a few seconds till there was not a living thing before us. Warriors, women, children, ponies, and dogs went down before that unaimed fire, end quote. And 30 minutes later, when the smoke finally cleared, as many as 300 Lakota lay dead. Adults, children, even infants. For a few moments, the planes were silent, as the smoke from the gunfire and the vicious Hotchkiss guns swirled up and was carried off by the icy winds. Chief American Horse would say, quote, And after most of all of them had been killed, a cry was made that all those who had not been killed or wounded should come forth and that they would be safe. Little boys came out of their places of refuge, and as soon as they came in sight, a number of soldiers surrounded them and butchered them there. End quote. Quote, it was prior to the signing of the treaty that the Indians of Standing Rock and Cheyenne River agencies were disarmed and dismounted 
and the power of the Sioux Nation broken. Many thousands of ponies were taken from the Indians at the two agencies, and the disarmament was complete so far as the agency Indians were concerned. End quote. Indian agent James McLaughlin. Hello, listeners. We are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt. And we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seed, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. American Horse would speak of his sadness over the event, quote, The fact of the killing of the women, and more especially the killing of the young boys and girls who are to go to make up the future strength of the Indian people, is the saddest part of the whole affair, and we feel it very sorely, end quote. The Sioux chief Spotted Elk had been slain in his blankets at the foot of the flagpole of truce, and the bodies of his people littered the plains as far as the eye could see. Many attempted escape by staying low in the ravine and steadily working their way away from the fray. Some were able to gather horses and helped other people climb up and run. They thought they would be safe in the ravine, but Iron Hale said the soldiers rolled the heavy Hotchkiss guns closer. He said, quote, It was brought forward to fire directly at those who had found shelter there. It became a storm of thunder and hail. There went up from these dying people a medley of death songs that would make the hardest heart weep. The death song is expressive of their wish to die. It expresses that the singer is anxious to die too. At this time I am unable to do anything more, and I took a rest, telling my brothers to keep up courage. The cannons were now pouring their shots and now breaking up the banks that were giving protection. The soldiers were pretty close to the edge of the banks, and these kept up a continual fire. Even if there was no more shooting, the smoke was so thick that the wounded could not live for it. It was suffocating. The Hotchkiss had been shooting rapidly. An Indian by me had been killed by it. His body had been penetrated in the pit of the stomach by a Hotchkiss shell which tore a hole through his body six inches in diameter. The man was insensible but breathed for an hour when he expired. End quote. Alice Ghost Horse, the 13-year-old Minikanju, said, quote, The cavalry men were shooting at every Lakota who was running, and it didn't matter if you were a child or a woman. They shot you anyway. We fled into the ravine where the long bushes were the thickest and dived in like frightened rabbits. The gunfire was pretty heavy and people were hollering for their children and children were crying everywhere. End quote. Alice recalls her father went back to try and help others but barely made it back to them after being shot in the leg. But still he led his family further down the ravine. He once again left them covered under bushes to try and save others but he would return covered in blood. He crawled to Alice and her mother, saying, They killed my son. She said they were all crying. Her father died, and only she and her mother survived. Many made their way west toward the Holy Rosary Catholic Mission through a blizzard before heading north to join the others along White Clay Creek. Others who fought for survival waited until the cover of night to move away from the stifling smoke in the air. The air was bitter cold. They had no protection, no food, no blankets. Their baby shivered against their mother's skin as she attempted to wrap herself around them. Nellie Knife would recall, quote, After the firing stopped, I returned to see if I could find any of my people. My mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and many brothers were dead. My father-in-law, Little Bull, was alive, but his leg was broken, end quote. Iron Hail found women and children, all wounded, hiding in a dugout pit further along the ravine. There were troopers shooting at them from above. Hugh McGinnis of the 7th Cavalry remembers this, quote, That battlefield was a terrible thing to behold. The memory is still enough to make me shudder. I was lying in a pool of blood surrounded by the shattered bodies of my comrades. Father Kraft, stabbed through the lungs, was lying nearby. Jim was in terrible shape, with a gaping hole in his chest. Murphy was dead, 
Mac had been shot through the heart, and our captain was crumpled on the snow near the center of the ring. The only officer killed in the foray, Captain George Wallace, had sustained four bullet wounds only to die from a skull-crushing blow of a war club. Lying there among the wounded and the dying, I was concerned about my own chance of survival. I had lost a lot of blood. My arm throbbed with every beat of my heart, and my thigh was a pulpy mess. The Corps' men moved rapidly in among us, however, carrying the wounded to a nearby knoll. They laid me with my head slanted toward the bottom of the incline to keep the remaining blood near my heart. I was surrounded by the moans of the wounded, the cries for water from soldiers suffering as I was from loss of blood, and there was a keening of grieving squaws moving among their dead while gunfire continued in the distance. And as the smoke cleared, the snow began to fall, blanketing the massacre with pure white. The snow didn't stop for three days. The bodies of the Native Americans lay prostrate and frozen, hidden under the snow, while the injured were taken to the nearby Pine Ridge Agency, where the Lakota were trying to get to in the first place. A telegram was sent off to General Nelson Miles praising the Army's efforts and bravery of the men during an intense battle. After receiving the congratulatory letter, but also hearing that women and children were murdered and their own men had been shot with their own guns, Miles decided it needed further investigation. It wasn't until January 3, 1891, because of the massive blizzard, Army hired civilians who gathered the dead and buried them in a mass grave at the rate of $2 per body. The bodies were frozen where they lay and were tossed in a massive grave. Their grotesque forms were being photographed by the reporters who made their way out to the massacre to get the story. Many of the bodies were naked, and many of their belongings had already been stolen. Miles was sent a telegram from one of his members sent to investigate the scene. It told in great detail of the deaths that occurred, but the totals couldn't be substantiated because, quote, there is evidence that a great number of bodies have been removed. Since the snow, wagon tracks were made near where it was supposed dead and wounded Indians had been lying. The camp of bodies of Indians had been more or less plundered before my command arrived here. I prohibited anything being removed from the bodies of the camp, end quote. The grave was on the very hill overlooking the encampment where the Hotchkiss guns were stationed to plow them down. General Miles himself came back to the scene following the three-day blizzard and estimated he saw around 300 snow-shrouded forms, quote, strewn over the countryside, end quote. He witnessed for himself the bodies of women with babies in their arms that had managed to run for two miles who were, quote, cut down without mercy, end quote. Miles's instructions by his bosses were to, quote, inquire into the facts and in the event of its being disclosed that there had been unsoldierly conduct to remove the responsible officer, end quote. After Miles's thorough inspection, he decided to relieve Forsyth of his command. In part, his report reads, quote, it appears that after a large number of the arms had been taken away from the Indians, the fight occurred between the troops and the Indians in close proximity, end quote. The report went on with the pinpoint accuracy of the facts, but when it came to the quote-unquote military tribunal, Forsyth's soldiers gave sworn testimonies that his character and actions were quote-unquote irreproachable. All charges were dropped against Forsyth, and he was returned to his station. Jerome Green, author of American Carnage, writes, quote, of the 370 Lakota arrested by Major Whitside east of Porcupine Butte and escorted to Wounded Knee, as many as 160 almost certainly died violently there or elsewhere from wounds received, end quote. He continues, within days, 146 bodies were gathered and hastily interred. Following December 29th, family members retrieved others for burial elsewhere. Shortly thereafter, 14 more bodies, including those succumbing from wounds at the Episcopal Church in Pine Ridge, where they were taken. Measured estimates have raised the figures of deaths to at least 200, end quote. Miraculously, four infants were found 
alive, safely wrapped in their mother's garments, pressed close to their skin. Green says, quote, Efforts to chronicle the names and the exact number of fatalities have proceeded over the decades since. Yet, beyond the original figure and well-considered approximations, the precise number of the dead Lakota at Wounded Knee has been impossible to determine and will likely remain unknown. McGinnis struggled with his participation that day. Even though he was wounded pretty early on, he says, quote, During the investigation of the deplorable debacle, General Miles and Buffalo Bill visited the wounded in the hospital tents, interrogating us at great length to get our versions of the tragic affair. I'm afraid I wasn't much help to them. As I see it, the battle was more or less a matter of spontaneous combustion sparked by mutual distrust. Did you hear a command to fire, General Miles asked each in turn? No one had. And it wasn't easy to explain to General Miles exactly how I felt about it at the time. But the situation was out of control the minute that accidental shot went off. It was like a condition reflex, a matter of self-preservation. Just like the rest of the men in the outfit, I wanted to keep my scalp, and in the panic that followed that shot, I fought instinctively till I fell. Judging by the slaughter on the battlefield, it was suggested that the soldiers simply went berserk, for who could explain such a merciless disregard for life? Britannica teaches, quote, The BIA attempted to portray the destruction at Wounded Knee as a battle, but later investigations and eyewitness accounts clearly established the event as a massacre. There was no significant armed resistance because the weapons confiscation and the U.S. Army combatants significantly outnumbered the Minikanju present. End quote. On February 11, 1891, a Sioux delegation met with the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. to hear the account of the massacre. Turning Hawk, who was present, would speak, saying, quote, This affair brought a great deal of distress upon all of the people, but especially upon the minds of those who stood loyal to the government and who did all that they were able to do in the matter of bringing about peace. They especially have suffered much distress and very much hurt at heart. End quote. When the cavalry attempted to claim that they were under attack, American Horse pointed out, the evidence said otherwise. He'd say, quote, I was not there at the time before the burial of the bodies, but I did go there with some of the police and the Indian doctor, and a great many of the bodies, men from the agency, and we went through the battlefield and saw where the bodies were from the track of the blood. The women and the children, of course, were strewn all the way along the circular village until they were dispatched. End quote. Turning Hawk added, they went along up the ravine for a long distance where they were pursued on both sides by the soldiers and shot down as the dead bodies showed afterwards. End quote. General Miles was disgusted by what he saw and heard, calling it quote, a criminal military blunder and a horrible massacre of women and children. End quote. However, for every action that Miles took to correct the actions and hold those responsible accountable, he was blocked at every angle. Matt Clayton writes, quote, He was ostracized and looked down upon by his peers, something he could not escape for the rest of his life. End quote. William Fitch Kelly, a Nebraskan reporter, would say, quote, I doubt that either a buck or a squaw will be left to tell the tale of this day's treachery. The members of the 7th Cavalry have once more shown themselves to be heroes. End quote. President Harris didn't need any bad press at the moment, since it was election season, just around the corner, so he suppressed Miles' reports and allowed the spin of the story that the cavalry were heroes against the vicious Indian savages. To quash the bad publicity even further, Congress awarded 20 participants of the massacre, which they labeled as a battle, those medals of honor and recommendations of promotion. Jerome Green would say in an interview, quote, At the time, written in the Army Regulations in 1889, officers and men would get the Medal of Honor for, and this is it, literally, for distinguished service. That's all it said. And so it was not as strict as it is today that it requires one to put their life on the line, 
End quote. Matt Clayton follows up this thought in his book where he writes, quote, Many of the recipients were given medals solely based on the number of helpless Native Americans they slaughtered on that fateful day, some for even pursuing those who were trying to hide from the slaughter. End quote. Side note, even though Miles was the commanding officer, he did not command a slaughter. During Forsyth's trial, he stated that Miles gave him a direct order to kill the Indians should negotiations fail and they get hostile. However, later, once all the written records were verified, it was proven that Forsyth was ordered not to even enter the camp. Therefore, right from the beginning, Forsyth was disobeying direct orders. Some Native Americans and other groups of individuals continue to lobby Congress to rescind these medals of dishonor. Side note. In 1916, a board of five Army generals on the retired list convened under act of law to review every Army Medal of Honor awarded. The board was to report on any Medals of Honor awarded or issued, quote, for any cause other than distinguished conduct by an officer or enlisted man in action involving actual conflict with an enemy, end quote. The commission, led by Nelson A. Miles, identified 911 awards for causes other than distinguished conduct. This included 29 servicemen who served as Abraham Lincoln's funeral guard, 6 civilians including Buffalo Bill Cody, and 12 others. Cody and 4 other civilian scouts who rendered distinguished service in action were therefore considered by the board to have fully earned their medals had their medals restored by the Army Board for Correction of Military Records in 1989. The report issued by the Medal of Honor Review Board in 1917 was reviewed by the Judge Advocate General, who also advised that the War Department should not seek in return of the revoked medals from the recipients identified by the Board. In the case of the recipients who continued to wear the medal, the War Department was advised to take no action to enforce the statute. End quote. And this is taken directly from Wikipedia, but I find it interesting that Nelson Miles was once upon a time held in such high regard and noted for his integrity as to have been put on this mission, having the medals of honor given to those from wounded knee would have been a most assaulting affront. But again, in the end, his recommendations were once again disregarded. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! In 1990, legislation issued a formal apology for the massacre, passed by Congress. As recently as November of 2021, more than a dozen lawmakers called on President Biden to rescind 20 medals of honor that were awarded to the soldiers who participated in the Wounded Knee Massacre in 1890. Quote, We ask you to act swiftly to revoke these undue honors a step that will help right this historical wrong and begin to heal the lasting wounds of many Native American descendants today, end quote. Seventeen lawmakers participated in the request. They continue, quote, The Medals of Honor awarded to the U.S. Army personnel for their participation in the Wounded Knee Massacre were wrongly bestowed. 
the actions of these soldiers were not heroic, and allowing them to continue to bear the highest military honor glorifies what should be treated as shameful episodes in our nation's history. End quote. The Wounded Knee Massacre was considered the final quote unquote battle of the Forty Year Indian Wars. It's marked as the last official defeat of the Native Americans beginning with the Creek Indian War in 1813, led by Andrew Jackson, who would later go on to create and sign the Indian Removal Act in 1830. It would also end the Ghost Dance Movement. It was the final blow. The hoop had been broken, as Black Elk would say in his interview for the book Black Elk Speaks, quote, The women and children were starving and freezing. If this were summer, I would say keep fighting to the end, but we cannot do this. We must think of the women and children, and that it is very sad for them, so we must make peace. Many soldiers were there. They stood in two lines with their guns in front of them as we went through to where we camped, and so it was all over. I did not know then how much was ended. When I look back now from this high hill of my old age, I can see the butchered women and children lying heaped and scattered all along the crooked gulch as plain as when I saw them with my eyes still young. And I can see that something else died there in the bloody mud and was buried in the blizzard. A people's dream died there. It was a beautiful dream. And I, to whom so great a vision was given in my youth, you see me now a pitiful old man who has done nothing, for the nation's hoop is broken and scattered. There is no center any longer, and the sacred tree is dead. Black Elk was a medicine man for the Oglala Sioux and survived the massacre with a hip wound where he was grazed with a bullet. He had toured with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in 1887, arriving back to the reservation just prior to the massacre. The captured Lakota arrived at the Pine Ridge Agency on January 15, 1891, and surrendered the following day. The Bar Museum held a collection of wounded knee artifacts, more than 130 items of clothing, weapons, arrows, and moccasins that were looted from the people that were killed. Just recently, they returned those items to the representatives of the Oglala Lakota and the Cheyenne River tribes. And just in case you think Wounded Knee Massacre changed the minds of the people of the time, James McLaughlin would write in his book titled My Friend the Indian, quote, Looking back at it now, I can see that the times were pregnant of great things. The white man was not standing still. Nothing could deter him from going forward, and if, in the march of the civilization, a people was blotted out, it would not be the first time that that same march had proved remorseless. Black Elk would pray, Again, and maybe the last time on this earth, I recall the great vision you sent me. It may be that some little root of the sacred tree still lives. Nourish it then, that it may leaf and bloom and fill with singing birds. Hear me, not for myself, but for my people. Hear me that they may once more go back into the sacred hoop and find the good red road and the shielding tree. End quote. Thank you for joining me today for this episode. If you want to dive deeper in this topic, as I mentioned, I wrote that article over on the website. After some of the episodes, you had come to me with additional questions, so I thought about starting a blog to extend the episodes might come in handy. It will also help if new information comes up and I need to amend the topic, and I'm curious to see how that evolves. And it largely depends on you. Feel free to reach out on the socials or on the website as I am often guided by your comments and questions and I bask in your words of praise. Nothing will drive me harder than those five stars that show up in the reviews. Our hundredth episode is right around the corner, so I've been working on some new things that will grow the podcast to its next level. And I'm excited to share those with you. Oh, and by the way, thanks so much for sharing the podcast with others. I am so grateful for our increased audience size. And that's it for today. I'll see you over at the website or on the socials. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time then.
Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.